Withdrawing from overseas bases, why a forward-deployed military posture is unnecessary, outdated, and dangerous by John Glazer. Cato Institute Policy Analysis Number 816. Introduction. In contemporary foreign policy debates, analysts and policymakers largely take America's worldwide constellation of overseas military bases for granted. But America's forward-deployed military posture, that is, its policy of maintaining a large overseas military presence, incurs substantial risk. Even under a strategy of primacy, the view that a peaceful world order and our own national security depend on maintaining a preponderance of U.S. power. The extent of U.S. overseas basing creates needless cost and danger. A less aggressive strategy requiring fewer overseas bases would greatly reduce military spending and security dangers to the United States. Particularly in the absence of a peer competitor such as the Soviet Union, overseas bases have become liabilities. By buttressing commitments to allies of the United States, overseas bases may in some cases deter adversaries and prevent spirals of conflict, but those military bases create several problems. The first problem is that modern surveillance and targeting technology have made the bases increasingly vulnerable, even while increasing our allies' ability to marshal their own defenses and to cooperate with U.S. forces outside the allies' theater. Second, the presence of U.S. military bases can militarize disputes and can antagonize opponents who otherwise would have been more docile. Third, U.S. bases can encourage allies to take risks they might otherwise avoid, thus heightening instability and entangling the United States in peripheral conflicts. Finally, forward-deployed forces are a temptation for U.S. leaders. They can set in motion calls for intervention where core U.S. interests are not at stake. The U.S. government does not keep a comprehensive and accessible account of its network of overseas bases. The most inclusive estimates are that at present, the United States controls approximately 800 overseas facilities in more than 70 countries. Base types fall into about five basic categories, ranging from main operating bases, which hold tens of thousands of troops deployed for long periods of time, often with their families, to en-route facilities structures, which merely store weaponry and other equipment. To get an idea of the scope of the U.S. military presence, Consider that in Europe alone, about 80,000 active-duty personnel are stationed at more than 350 installations, 39 of which are major bases in the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, Norway, Denmark, Belgium, the Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, Greece, and Kosovo. Smaller bases are located in Ireland, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Georgia. The U.S. Navy's Sixth Fleet rotates three destroyer squadrons, up to 40 ships, and 175 aircraft in the Mediterranean Sea, relying on several fixed bases on land. The United States maintains approximately 200 tactical nuclear weapons throughout the region. Europe is a major logistical hub for U.S. operations abroad, with more than 95% of U.S.-based units bound for Iraq and Afghanistan transiting the European Command Area of Responsibility. In the Middle East, deployment numbers can be difficult to determine with precision 
because troops are stationed on a temporary and rotational basis, and the U.S. government keeps much information about deployed troops secret. But there are approximately 50,000 troops in the region currently, not including military or civilian contractors. As of February 2017, major bases still exist in Afghanistan, where approximately 12,900 U.S. forces still operate, and Iraq, where about 7,500 troops currently rotate in and out. An air base is stationed in Jordan, where there are more than 2,500 troops, and a small number of U.S. troops are in Israel for surveillance and ballistic missile defense. U.S. Navy, Air Force, and Army installations are located in Egypt in Cairo, at Port Said along the Suez Canal, and in the Sinai Peninsula, as well as Kuwait, which holds more than 13,400 troops. Major Air Force bases are located in Qatar, at Al-Udid, and in the United Arab Emirates at Al-Dafra, where there are more than 5,200 and 1,800 troops respectively. The U.S. Navy's 5th Fleet maintains a permanent presence of more than 6,400 personnel in Bahrain, from which it launches daily patrols of the Persian Gulf. Small bases and training facilities are also located in Yemen, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. In the Asia-Pacific area, there are more than 154,000 active-duty military personnel, 330,000 if you include civilians. There are 49 major bases located in Japan, South Korea, Australia, Singapore, Guam, the Marshall Islands, and the Northern Mariana Islands. Smaller bases are positioned in Hong Kong, Thailand, Cambodia, the Philippines, and elsewhere. The Obama administration's Asia pivot aspired to greater basing access and troop presence in countries such as Vietnam and the Philippines. Rotating through Asia-Pacific are five aircraft carrier strike groups, including as many as 180 ships and 1,500 aircraft, two-thirds of the Marine Corps' combat strength, five Army striker brigades, and more than half of overall U.S. naval strength. The United States also maintains many small bases in almost two dozen African countries, including Djibouti, Niger, Chad, Burkina Faso, Mauritania, Ghana, Liberia, South Sudan, and Uganda, as well as a relatively small number in Latin America, including those in Honduras, Cuba, Colombia, Peru, Chile, Argentina, and Brazil. Bases are also kept in such remote outposts as Greenland, Iceland, American Samoa, and Antarctica. The estimated total cost of maintaining this overseas base and troop presence ranges from about $60 billion to $120 billion annually. America's global military presence is the tangible manifestation of the grand strategy of primacy that has driven the U.S. approach to the world for decades. Primacy, according to proponents William Crystal and Robert Kagan, means maintaining a preponderance of U.S. power, a benevolent hegemony over the international system. According to an internal Pentagon memo in 1992, a forward-deployed military presence serves the core objective of convincing potential competitors that they need not aspire to a greater role or pursue a more aggressive posture to protect their legitimate interests. Bases abroad help expand the domain of American influence and responsibility, enabling Washington to use force to police the world 
and suppress conflict spirals. America's forward-deployed posture is not intended to protect the nation from direct attack. Rather, its goal is to provide security for other states and protect against contingencies that, for the most part, would not involve vital U.S. interests. Indeed, a recent RAND Corporation analysis put it, military facilities used primarily for power projection are not defensive strongholds, but rather launching pads and logistical hubs that support operations beyond their immediate vicinity. In other words, U.S. bases overseas are not national defense per se. They are an insurance policy on stability abroad. The argument of this paper is that this posture should be narrowed to prioritize U.S. defense interests. Despite the tendency of policymakers and the news media to exaggerate dangers and inflate threats from abroad, much scholarship shows that international conflict and overall levels of violence are at historic lows. The remarkably secure position of the United States, along with the relatively peaceful state of international politics, enables a withdrawal from this global network of overseas military bases. Rather than defending the security of other states and attempting to stabilize regions of conflict around the world, the United States should encourage allies to carry the burden of their own defense and should extricate itself from regional disputes, lest it gets drawn into conflicts in which its vital interests are not at stake. This paper evaluates the main strategic justifications for overseas bases, offers critiques of the current policy, and explores some additional costs and drawbacks of the status quo. The concluding sections propose an alternative posture consistent with a grand strategy of restraint, namely, withdrawing from all but a few overseas bases. The Rationale for Overseas Military Bases Historically, great powers constructed foreign military bases for essentially imperial purposes to acquire additional territory, colonize new lands, control distant resources for the material benefit of the state, enable future conquest, and outcompete other empires. Throughout ancient Greece, rivalrous Athens and Sparta competed for basing access. Rome set up garrisons that extended from Britannia across the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf. China's Second Ming Empire constructed a network of bases all across the Indian Ocean, from the Strait of Malacca to the Gulf of Aden. The European empires, starting with Portugal and Spain in the 15th century, and ending with the British and French in the 20th, used military bases across Asia, Africa, and the Americas, often as a means to satisfy mercantilist ends of monopolizing trade opportunities through colonization and strengthening the home economy at the expense of rivals. As coal-powered sea travel proliferated in the 19th and early 20th centuries, military bases served logistical requirements for refueling ships on trade routes and military missions. Today, though, the strategic rationale for overseas military bases has changed significantly. The explosion of world trade has made the need for military garrisons for purposes of trade and ensuring access to resources dubious. Conquest by great powers has declined partly because of the ascendancy of post-World War II norms of territorial integrity and self-determination. Furthermore, the destructive power of modern militaries, especially through nuclear weapons, has discouraged the kind of aggressive expansionism common among the empires of old.
maintaining overseas military bases is a uniquely American preoccupation. The United States has approximately 800 military bases. France and the United Kingdom have roughly 12 each, and Russia, the adversary with the next most overseas bases, has about nine. The adoption of this worldwide American network of military bases began in World War II. America's share of world power at the end of the war was stupendous. Unlike the other great powers, the United States was largely untouched by combat. It accounted for more than half of the world's manufacturing production, and it possessed two-thirds of the world's gold reserves. It also has the greatest per capita productivity, the most powerful conventional military in the world, and a monopoly on nuclear weapons. The goal of policymakers was to preserve that position for as long as possible and to ensure U.S. security and prosperity by maintaining the division of Eurasia's industrial might, preserving freedom of the seas, and preventing the consolidation of Persian Gulf oil. In the past, America's favorable geography isolated from Eurasia allowed it to remain aloof as long as there was a rough balance of power among the great nations. But for policymakers at the end of World War II, the development of air power and nuclear weapons, not to mention the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, has established a new sense of vulnerability previously attenuated by the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The post-war environment of enfeebled war-torn allies in Western Europe, a devastated U.S.-occupied Japan, and an empowered Soviet Union precluded a swift return to an offshore balancing strategy in which America could let locals handle aggressors except when the stakes became too high. The goal of a rough balance of power remained, and policymakers determined that forward deployment was required to maintain it. Throughout the Cold War, overseas military bases had three functions. First, they were intended to prevent the buildup of military capabilities or development of nuclear weapons by states then under U.S. occupation, particularly Germany and Japan. The goal, explains international relations scholar Christopher Lane, was to foreclose the possibility that the Western European states would renationalize their security policies and thus strip them of the capacity to take unilateral national action. Second, large numbers of ground, air, and naval forces were garrisoned in Europe and along the Asian littoral to deny territorial advances or attacks by the Soviet Union. Third, bases were to contain the Soviets and ensure against the outbreak of war through extended deterrence. Today's justifications for overseas bases have changed, but the bases remain as strong a part of the nation's grand strategy as ever. Although the number of troops stationed abroad has declined since 1990, the United States still maintains the same forward-deployed posture more than a quarter century after the fall of the Soviet Union. Shed of military competition from the Soviet Union and unencumbered by external constraints on its power, the United States has been free to broaden the conception of its national interests. Not only does America take preventive actions to stave off potential peer competitors, but it also uses its military power, albeit selectively, in the name of protecting human rights, promoting democracy and the rule of law, disciplining rogue states, imposing regime change, engaging in nation-building missions, 
and maintaining local disputes around the globe. Three broad strategic justifications motivate today's forward-deployed posture. First, to deter potential aggressors. Second, to reassure friends and allies. And third, to enable a rapid military response for any operational contingency. The first two justifications are designed to demonstrate the trustworthiness of America's threats and promises, and thus bolster the credibility of the U.S. security guarantees. The third is based on the assumption that being there is essential for rapid deployment in military interventions. To deter aggressors, bases serve as a tangible indicator of American willingness to fight should an adversary attack a U.S. ally or otherwise destabilize a region through military action. They serve as a tripwire by putting the lives of American soldiers at risk and thus triggering U.S. military intervention in case of attack. It would be difficult politically for the United States to renege on a security guarantee if troops were already caught up in the fighting. Finally, large permanent garrisons require a lot of time and resources to abandon, thus making it difficult to withdraw amid conflict, no matter how peripheral the strategic interests at stake. By bolstering U.S. credibility to intervene in response to attack, Forward deployment is intended to simultaneously deter adversaries and reassure allies. The combination of dissuading adversaries from aggression and making allies feel safer is meant to enhance global peace and stability. That set of reasons is the logic of hegemonic stability theory, sometimes described as the American pacifier. The presence of the American military is supposed to discourage nuclear proliferation conventional arms races, and war. The third argument is that overseas bases provide the logistical infrastructure necessary for rapid response to any military major contingency, or what is sometimes called contingency responsiveness. As a recent RAND Corporation study explains, in-place forces provide the immediate capabilities needed to counter major acts of aggression. They provide the initial response necessary to prevent quick defeat while awaiting the arrival of aerial, maritime, and ground reinforcements. Any contingency that necessitates major military mobilization to a war zone will require substantial reinforcements, the bulk of which will be deployed from the continental United States. However, because that action can take days or weeks, Forward-deployed forces are intended to rapidly respond to crises in which military successes may be decisive. A Critique of U.S. Military Base Posture As the circumstances of international politics have changed in the post-Cold War years, and as innovations in technology have both shortened travel times and made in-place forces more vulnerable, the strategic and operational utility of overseas bases deserves renewed scrutiny. This section critiques the three main strategic justifications for overseas bases mentioned previously, deterrence, reassurance, and contingency responsiveness, and explores some additional costs and drawbacks of maintaining a permanent peacetime military presence abroad. The deterrence value of overseas military bases is frequently exaggerated. As Robert Johnson argues, the Soviet threat throughout the Cold War spurned undue alarmism 
and even without American forces deployed in Western Europe, a Soviet attack was extremely unlikely. The Soviets were not as expansionist as generally feared and were easier to contain than many analysts and policymakers thought. Yet, as Alexander L. George and Richard Smoke write, by 1956, the United States' reliance on deterrence threats and alliance commitments as the primary tools of foreign policy vis-à-vis, the Soviet Union has become a rigified response to almost any perceived communist encroachment anywhere in the world, and indeed had the negative effect of reinforcing the policymakers' tendency to rely too heavily on deterrence in lieu of diplomacy. Deterrence is difficult to demonstrate. Because success is measured by the absence of an unwanted action by the adversary, determining whether something did not happen because of deterrence or because the adversary had no intention to attack in the first place or some other reason is inherently challenging. That problem plagues many of the areas of U.S. foreign policy. For example, analysts and policymakers alike claim that the U.S. military presence in South Korea is the only thing deterring a unilateral North Korean attack. But South Korea's economy is 40 times the size of North Korea's, South Korea has twice the population of North Korea, and South Korean military capabilities so far exceed that of Pyongyang's that there is little question which side would win an all-out war. These glaring gaps in economic and military might deter the North from attacking the South even absent U.S. military power in the region. Similarly, advocates of a forward-deployed posture in the Middle East regard the U.S. Navy's presence in Bahrain and its daily patrolling of the Persian Gulf as the principal deterrent that would stop a state like Iran from attempting to close the Strait of Hormuz. But Iran exports most of its oil via the strait and would impose serious economic damage on itself in attempting to close it. Such an attempt would also threaten the vital interests of the regional powers, as well as external powers that rely on the free flow of oil from the region. Iran would thus run unacceptably high risk of retaliation by an international coalition of states, and would probably be deterred even without the permanent U.S. naval presence in the Gulf. Several trends that are unrelated to forward deployment contribute to general deterrence and stability making overseas bases superfluous. Advocates of the United States' forward-deployed posture contend that it is a driving force in creating a more peaceful world by dampening the effects of anarchy and by ameliorating conflict spirals. This argument is the essence of the logic behind deterrence and reassurance, but other plausible, causal explanations exist for the lack of a great power war since 1945. Although trade and economic interdependence are not always sufficient to stave off conflict between potential belligerents, there is solid evidence that the two factors do reduce the likelihood of war. The destructive power of modern conventional militaries has also made war prohibitively costly in many cases and the fact that most of the world's great powers possess nuclear weapons has likely been a major factor in the decline of international conflict. Normative changes in how people see war also contribute to peace among nations. War is increasingly seen as an abhorrent last resort instead of a glorified mission that creates masculine virtue. The absence of a true hegemonic threat, 
in this increasingly stable international environment undermines the case for permanent alliances and the bases that underlie them. The rise of an expansionist European power bent on contentional domination is nowhere on the horizon. And it's not clear that U.S. military forces on the ground are the reason for this. In any case, the countries in Europe and East Asia would likely confront any rising hegemon in the absence of U.S. bases and security commitments. As a prosperous and military-capable continent, Europe is especially able to handle such an unlikely development without the presence of an extra-regional military power. Finally, advocates of forward deployment argue that the United States' overseas presence prevents nuclear proliferation by reassuring host nations. The record on that score is decidedly mixed. Bases and security guarantees can reassure some allies and thereby discourage proliferation, most notably in Japan and South Korea. However, host nations are not always reassured. Some U.S. allies, for example, the United Kingdom, France, and Israel, developed and have retained nuclear weapons despite U.S. protection. Overseas bases are generally thought to be the frontline forces needed to successfully prosecute a war. However, a forward-deployed presence is more often about deterrence than about operational convenience. During the Cold War, for example, a chief purpose of troops in Europe was to guarantee U.S. involvement in a conflict not to be particularly useful in battlefield scenarios. As President Dwight D. Eisenhower once commented in reference to the 1958-59 Berlin crisis, if resort to arms should become necessary, our troops in Berlin would be quickly overrun, and the conflict would almost inevitably be global war. For this type of war, our nuclear forces were more than adequate. A RAND Corporation report on basing posture reiterates that point for today. The forces that are forward deployed are not sufficient of themselves to address conflicts of every scope. Indeed, after the initial phase of operations to stabilize or even resolve a situation, the response by the U.S. military to a contingency of any substantial size will come primarily from forces deployed from bases in the United States. One of the prominent arguments in favor of maintaining an indefinite military presence is that it would be too difficult and time-consuming to secure host governments' permission for access during a crisis in which U.S. forces were needed. That concern is overstated. To begin with, the ability to use bases for new missions is always conditional on host government permission. Basing agreements typically stipulate that the United States must consult with host nation governments before conducting any non-routine operations. A 2016 RAND Corporation study concludes, the presence of large permanent bases does not increase the likelihood of securing contingency access. But more to the point, we have historically not had trouble securing basing access during wartime. Indeed, the United States has been able to add new operating facilities overseas for every major conflict in the past 40 years. For combat operations that do not rise to the level of a crisis requiring massive mobilization of forces, deployment from the continental United States is sufficient because of technological advances in military capability, 
travel, and communications. This is the case with deployments generally, but particularly so with air campaigns. According to Robert Harkavy, a basing expert at Pennsylvania State University, the development of longer-range aircraft and ships, plus the development of techniques for aerial refueling of planes and at-sea refueling of ships, has had the effect of greatly decreasing the number of basing points required by major powers to maintain global access networks. Carrier-based air power can now conduct major campaigns with around-the-clock sorties well beyond literal reaches in remote areas on short notice and without access to nearby forward bases. The United States long-range bombers can deliver non-refueled payloads for missions up to 8,800 miles, and tanker refueling can extend that almost indefinitely, says Harkavy. In the 1991 Gulf War, the United States flew B-52s from Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana to conduct bombing raids against Iraq in round-trip missions that exceeded 10,000 miles and took only 30 hours. During the first three weeks of the American buildup to the Gulf War, according to Kent Calder, professor at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, the United States moved more troops and equipment than in the first three months of the Korean War. In 1999, U.S. Air Force bombers conducted attacks against Serbian targets from the continental United States. In a 2000 North Atlantic Treaty Organization NATO exercise, the Global Hawk drone vehicle provided direct unmanned support for amphibious operations in Portugal from its station at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And the following year, it flew 7,500 miles across the Pacific to Australia. Drone technology has advanced dramatically in the ensuing years. In the initial operations against Taliban-held Afghanistan in 2001, B-2 stealth bombers based at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri flew 44-hour missions with the help of aerial refueling capabilities, without using any bases in the vicinity of Afghanistan at all, reports Calder. And although the United States made use of in-theater bases in Kuwait, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates to conduct operations against Saddam Hussein's Iraq in 2003, it also flew bombing missions from a transcontinental distance. In addition to bombers' ability to complete missions without nearby bases, cruise missiles launched from deployed naval assets can supplant the need for in-theater bases. Even beyond airstrikes, U.S. troops can deploy to virtually any region fast enough that they can be based in the continental United States. In emergency situations, according to Rand, Lighter ground forces can deploy by air from the United States almost as quickly as they can from within a region. An armored brigade combat team can get from Germany to Kuwait in approximately 18 days, only about four days more quickly than if it deployed from the east coast of the United States. U.S.-based forces could handicap contingency responsiveness in certain smaller missions. The transit time to the Taiwan Strait, for example, for a carrier strike group deployed from Yokosuka, Japan, would take three to five days, whereas deployment from the West Coast would take up to 16 days. However, basing capacity in Hawaii or Guam can cut those transit times considerably. Admittedly, deploying heavy forces by air in bulk 
is not plausible for contingencies requiring massive ground troops, but contingencies that truly depend on extremely rapid deployment are rare. The United States tends to have the luxury of intervening at its own pace, and given America's relative insulation from external threats, it's not clear that speedy intervention is even desirable. For one thing, reducing the emphasis on rapid response would likely signal to allies the need to cut back on free riding, that is, spending less on the military, in the expectation that the United States will carry their defense burden. Moreover, robbing the executive branch of the ability to rapidly insert the United States into a military conflict abroad may indeed be a good thing. Since World War II, constitutional restrictions on the president's war-making powers have eroded. But the framers of the Constitution were wise to constrain the president's war-making powers. Affording the executive a speedy response with in-place forces, therefore, not only undermines the rule of law, but also can intensify war-proneness. As Bernard Brody once wrote, the notion that it is incontestably good to expand the chief executive's options is rather peculiar, because it runs directly counter to the basic tenets of constitutional government, and because one way of keeping people out of trouble is to deny them the means for getting into it. Keeping U.S. troops permanently stationed abroad presents several strategic problems. First, such forces are more vulnerable to attack than forces stationed at home. Even though the preponderance of U.S. power and the general decline in international war probably mean that U.S. overseas bases are not at risk of bombardment in the immediate future, certain plausible contingencies could make them priority targets. If conflict breaks out over Taiwan or maritime territorial disputes in the East China Sea or the South China Sea, the United States would be obligated to intervene against China to fulfill its security guarantee to Taiwan, Japan, and the Philippines, which would then trigger Chinese actions against U.S. assets. To take another example that is now more remote, thanks to the recent negotiated nuclear deal with Iran, if Israel were to preventively strike one of Iran's nuclear facilities, the United States would be implicated immediately because of its promises to fight to defend Israel. According to a 2012 report, U.S. bases in Bahrain would be a priority target in Iranian retaliatory strikes. For facilities based in certain countries, particularly in the Middle East, the risk of terrorist attacks on military bases has increased in recent years. Not only are homemade explosive and car bombs easier to access and produce, but also especially after the damage done by the post-9-11 wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. An anti-American narrative has become even more popular, making U.S. bases desirable targets for terrorist attacks. Overseas bases can inspire blowback in the form of terrorism. According to Robert Pape, the principal cause of suicide terrorism is resistance to foreign occupation. Infamous examples like the 1983 bombings of the Marine barracks in Beirut, Lebanon, that killed 241 Americans, and the Al-Qaeda attack in 2000 on the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen are illustrative. But bases can also motivate attacks on U.S. soil. The presence of U.S. military bases in Saudi Arabia was one of the most prominent grievances cited by Al-Qaeda 
in the lead-up to the 9-11 attacks and the post-9-11 surge in the U.S. military presence in the Middle East coincided with a massive increase in the rate of terrorist attacks inspired by anti-Americanism. In addition to terrorism, the development of extremely accurate intermediate and long-range ballistic missiles and modern satellite-based sensors, among other innovations, makes overseas bases susceptible to asymmetric attacks that are very difficult to defend against. China, in particular, has invested heavily in these capabilities, meaning that a large percentage of U.S. facilities, more than 90% of U.S. air facilities in Northeast Asia, are in high-threat areas. China's conventional airstrike system, the DF-21, can hit all military facilities along the entire Japanese archipelago, says Toshi Yoshihara, the chair of Asia-Pacific Studies at the U.S. Naval War College. Michael J. Lestombo and others write that these weapons and others like them could cripple an airbase, incapacitate an aircraft carrier, and devastate concentrated ground forces. Granted, the tripwire effect of U.S. forward bases, along with the fact that U.S. allies benefit from these capabilities as well, means that deterrence remains robust in Asia. Still, Chinese strategic planners have discussed striking U.S. bases in the unlikely scenario that inadvertent escalation results in an outbreak of conflict. In other words, bases offer only a marginal increase in deterrence at added risk to forward-deployed troops. Another major strategic problem with a forward-deployed military posture is that it can sometimes have the opposite of its intended effect. Stationing military bases near an adversary can cause fear that generates counteraction instead of scaring an adversary into submission. The most intense crisis of the Cold War period may have had its origins in such a dilemma. In June 1961, the Kennedy administration placed Jupiter ballistic missiles in Turkey, bordering the Soviet Union. It was partly in response to that decision that the Soviet Union decided to place its own missiles in Cuba, precipitating a dangerous crisis between the nuclear powers in October of that year. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev reportedly called the deployment of Jupiter missiles an intolerable provocation and told his ambassador to Cuba, inasmuch as the Americans already have surrounded the Soviet Union with a circle of their military bases and missile installations of various designations, we should repay them in kind, let them try their own medicine. Today, the U.S. military presence in Europe is tasked, in part, with deterring Russian military aggression. And on those recent occasions in which Russia has acted out militarily, as it did against Georgia in 2008 on the side of separatists in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and in Ukraine in 2014, advocates of a foreign posture blame the incursions on a lack of deterrence or diminished American credibility. But Russia's interventions in Georgia and Ukraine derive more from Moscow's insecurities about the expansion of U.S.-led Western economic and military institutions into former Soviet republics and even up to the Russia border than from insufficient U.S. military presence in Eastern Europe. Post-Cold War NATO expansion is the source of profound anxiety and lingering resentment in Moscow. Following Vladimir Putin's annexation of Crimea, 
the Russian leader decried NATO expansion as an attempt at containment, and when in 2015 NATO invited Montenegro to be the newest member of the alliance, the Kremlin warned that further expansion eastward cannot but result in retaliatory actions. One could say that forward deployment contributes to the insecurity it purports to prevent. Bases can also motivate nearby adversaries to pursue nuclear weapons. Iran's expansion of nuclear enrichment in the run-up to the recent nuclear deal between Iran, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Russia, China, and Germany, for example, was likely understood by many in Tehran as a measure of protection from the United States. After all, the United States habitually intervenes in the region and is allied with Iran's two most vociferous enemies, Israel and Saudi Arabia, and has carried out regime change and years of military occupation in the countries on Iran's immediate east and west flanks. In addition, while bases in Japan and South Korea have arguably helped dissuade these countries from developing nuclear weapons, the U.S. presence creates pressure for North Korea to do so. Pyongyang's efforts to secure a deliverable nuclear weapon may be partly motivated by a desire for the prestige associated with such capabilities, but fear of U.S. military power in South Korea and a desire to deter an attack by either or both countries are also significant motivators. Proximate U.S. military forces and an adversarial relationship with Washington helped motivate China's 1964 acquisition of nuclear weapons. And in recent years, U.S. actions in Iraq and Libya have signaled to potential rogue states the wisdom, rather than the danger of obtaining a nuclear deterrent or at least maintaining a threshold breakout capability. Entanglement is another risk exacerbated by the attempt to reassure allies with overseas bases. If U.S. troops are stationed abroad to demonstrate credibility, and then the United States refuses to intervene in the event of a conflict, U.S. policymakers will suffer political cost, even if the circumstances do not involve vital U.S. interests. Much academic literature has questioned the need to take military action solely for the sake of credibility but the presence of military bases in or near a conflict zone can intensify calls to intervene to satisfy credibility concerns, thus making entanglement more likely. Allies can entrap a security patron into war with their rivals by pursuing high-risk strategies. U.S. military presence can encourage this moral hazard, sometimes called reckless driving. Current U.S. posture is plagued by plausible scenarios of entrapment and its commitments to Taiwan, Japan, and the Philippines over territorial and maritime sovereignty disputes with China. In 2012, the Philippines engaged in an intense and potentially dangerous two-month naval standoff with China, a much more capable military power over the disputed Scarabo Shoal in the South China Sea. Heightened nationalist sentiment certainly played a role in the quarrel, but the unequal power dynamics between the two states raises reasonable questions about whether the relatively weak Philippines was emboldened to challenge a much stronger China because of the United States security guarantee and nearby military bases. That kind of moral hazard is a liability that could pull the United States into conflicts unconnected with its direct security 
and economic interests. Fundamentally, moral hazard is a function of the commitment, but it is exacerbated by the physical presence of bases and troops. In the past, the United States stumbled into conflicts because of the entangled influence of credibility, commitments, and the capabilities presented by a forward military presence. Examples include such major wars as Korea and Vietnam. In the case of Korea, the United States established what was supposed to be a temporary military presence there following the Japanese surrender in August 1945. The U.S. military presence reflected prior agreements between President Franklin D. Roosevelt and Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin at Yalta to establish a multinational trusteeship that would, in Philip Bennett's words, guide the Koreans to self-government. By December 1945, U.S. General John R. Hodge recommended full withdrawal. Secretary of War Robert Patterson argued the same in April 1947. In 1948, the National Security Council proposed withdrawing all American troops by the end of the year. The Joint Chiefs explained that Korea is of little strategic value to the United States and warned that lingering military presence risked entangling the United States in a war following some provocation on the peninsula. That entanglement indeed happened in 1950 when the North invaded the South. Unfortunately, calls to withdraw had been unheeded. Similarly, in Vietnam, despite years of a slow trickle of troop deployments, President Lyndon Johnson was able to get congressional authorization for a massive escalation in military involvement only after a U.S. warship allegedly clashed with Vietnamese naval vessels in the Gulf of Tonkin, 12 nautical miles off the coast of Vietnam. The warship, the USS Maddox, was conducting electronic warfare support measures to assist U.S. military advisors in South Vietnam. The notion that American troops deployed to the area were in danger helped entangle the United States in what became one of the most costly quagmires in American history. The presence of forces abroad can also tempt policymakers to get involved in elective wars that we could more easily forego if we lacked in-theater bases. In NATO's 2011 intervention in Libya's civil war, for example, the United States bombed Libya from warships in the Mediterranean and from air bases in Spain, Italy, and Germany, among other nearby locations. The weak arguments in favor of U.S. involvement, which included conjectural claims about impending humanitarian disaster and pressure from NATO allies, might have been harder to sell politically if U.S. forces had not already been deployed in the area. The United States has frequently supported dictators abroad to secure basing access. American policy does frequently back dictators, according to Calder. And the tendency to back dictators and to refrain from demanding their removal appears to be greater where bases are involved, America's democratic ideals notwithstanding. U.S. support for the Samosas in Nicaragua Mobutu in Zaire, Park Chung-hee in Korea, Papadopoulos in Greece, Franco in Spain, Marcos in the Philippines, and Karimov in Uzbekistan conforms to this trend. Uzbekistan is an illustrative example. Following 9-11, Uzbekistan served as a convenient logistical hub for U.S. troops fighting in landlocked Afghanistan. 
Accordingly, Washington increased support to Uzbekistan's authoritarian regime of Islam Karimov, but concerns about human rights plagued the relationship from the beginning. In 2005, Karimov ordered troops to fire indiscriminately on a crowd of thousands of protesters and at one point cordoned off the site of the protest and conducted a systematic slaughter of unarmed civilians, killing hundreds in what came to be known as the Andesian Massacre. The Karimov regime earned a reputation for its systematic use of brutal torture methods, including electric shock, asphyxiation, and boiling people alive. U.S. support has ebbed and flowed over the years, at one point prompting the Karimov regime to order the closure of the U.S. base at Karshi Khanabad in response to public U.S. criticism. But the current Uzbek regime continues to benefit from lavish economic and military support from Washington. Support for dictators in return for basing access has been an element in U.S. foreign policy for a long time. But even bases in relatively democratic countries can involve the sacrifice of liberal values. As far back as the early years of the Eisenhower administration, overseas military bases were beginning to provoke anti-American sentiment in the countries where they were located, writes John Lewis Gaddis. Resentment over the presence of foreign bases can linger for generations. In 1991, the New York Times reported that the Philippine Senate assailed the U.S. military presence as a vestige of colonialism and an affront to Philippine sovereignty, and President Corazon C. Aquino ordered full withdrawal. Public opinion in Okinawa, Japan, is resoundingly opposed to the U.S. military base presence on the territory, a feeling that is exacerbated by the recurrent problem of crimes and misbehavior by U.S. troops there. From 1972 to 2011, the Okinawan prefectural government documented 5,747 criminal cases against GIs, including more than 1,000 violent offenses. In June 2016, the alleged murder of a 20-year-old Okinawan woman by a U.S. Marine veteran working as a civilian contractor prompted a protest in the capital of the Okinawan prefecture with 65,000 people in attendance. Such popular opposition can be difficult to square with purported American values about the importance of democracy. The financial burden on U.S. taxpayers of maintaining a global military base presence is exceedingly difficult to calculate, primarily because neither the Pentagon nor Congress provides reliable estimates to the public. Most of the estimates they do provide are not comprehensive. According to Rand, Stationing forces and maintaining bases overseas does entail measurably higher direct financial costs to the Defense Department as compared with bases in the continental United States. It costs an average of 10000 to 40000 more per year to station a single member of the military in Europe or Asia in zones without war than in the United States. The annual recurring fixed cost for a single overseas base before any personnel transport, equipment, or operational costs are factored in, range from $50 million to $200 million per year. For fiscal year 2015, the Pentagon's Overseas Cost Summary, OCS, estimated the total cost of overseas bases, facilities, and personnel stationed abroad 
at about $19.6 billion. There are several problems with this tally. The Center for Strategic and International Studies estimates that the overall cost of the U.S. military presence in the Asia-Pacific alone is more than half that amount, about $12 billion per year, excluding expenditures for equipment or U.S. naval fleet operations. And according to Barry Posen, between 15 to 20 percent of annual U.S. military spending, between $91 billion and $121 billion for fiscal year 2016, is allocated to the maintenance of forces for military action in the Middle East alone. Billions spent on the war in Iraq are not included in this estimate, he explains. Furthermore, the OCS estimate includes an asterisk that lists 65 countries, with bases and facilities lumped into a single other category comprising countries with costs less than $5 million. However, that list mysteriously excludes countries that are known to have U.S. bases costing well over $5 million, such as Kosovo, Honduras, and Colombia, which together cost hundreds of millions of dollars. The list also excludes U.S. territories such as Guam and as much as $4.6 billion in military construction spending at unspecified locations, a figure found in the Pentagon budget but omitted from the OCS. Some of the annual expenses of overseas bases are offset by host nations that cover the costs of U.S. bases in their territory. Although data are scant and scattered, one ref estimate that incorporates everything from direct cash payments to tax and lease discounts and in-kind goods and services concludes that the total annual host nation support for U.S. bases abroad amounts to about $7 billion to $8.5 billion. But far more often, the United States is footing the bill for its own overseas facilities. Frequently, Washington even pays host governments in return for basing rights. According to former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense James Blaker, approximately 18% of total foreign military and economic aid is payment for basing access, which amounted to about $6.3 billion in fiscal year 2014. Part of the discrepancy in cost estimates come from the fact that there are several official methods of measuring the cost of America's overseas presence. Narrower measures involve tallying how much more overseas bases cost as compared with domestic bases, or simply calculating personnel costs plus construction and maintenance costs. More inclusive methods add indirect operating costs, such as administrative support, investment in weapons procurement, health care, and equipment repairs. The most comprehensive estimates include the cost of training, recruiting, and maintaining domestically-based forces that will become available to fulfill military commitments in coordination with in-place forces. Keeping to what he calls a very conservative estimate, American University's David Vine estimates a total of $71.8 billion in annual cost for overseas bases, facilities, and personnel, excluding those in use in active war zones. This total doesn't include non-essential operations and missions that the United States engages in because it has a network of bases at its disposal, such as humanitarian missions, show-of-force patrols, counter-narcotics efforts, and anti-piracy operations. Although the specific total outlay is hard to pin down, 
the cost of our permanent peacetime overseas military presence is substantial. Closing redundant bases abroad, or at least consolidating forces at fewer bases, could provide considerable savings that could be left in more productive sectors of the economy. The Rand Corporation's cost reduction posture, an illustrative scenario in which some overseas bases would be closed, relocated, or consolidated at fewer locations, suggests that modest reductions in the overall overseas posture could yield up to $3 billion in annual savings, even without jettisoning any of our current treaty obligations or security arrangements. Other studies by the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, the Congressional Budget Office, and the Center for American Progress estimate that cutting our overseas bases and personnel in Europe and Asia by one-third could save between $7 billion and $12 billion a year. More thoroughgoing reforms that involve reducing overseas presence and commitments could reduce annual defense spending by 25% or more. The Case for Reducing America's Global Military Footprint The United States is arguably the most secure great power in history. No nation in the world credibly threatens to attack or invade the United States. With weak and pliant neighbors to its north and south, vast oceans to its east and west, and a superior nuclear deterrent, it has achieved a level of protection from external threats without parallel. The United States accounts for almost 40% of worldwide defense spending and possesses the most capable and sophisticated military in history. A globe-straddling, forward-deployed military presence is a costly burden that elevates peripheral interests to the level of vital ones, takes on security responsibilities that can and should be fulfilled by other states, and produces negative, unintended consequences for U.S. interests. A forward-deployed military posture is useful, if decreasingly so, for a grand strategy of primacy, which posits that the United States, as the most powerful and righteous state, has the capacity and the obligation to maintain military bases throughout the world to uphold global peace and stability in an otherwise dangerous international system. But primacy does not yield strategic benefits commiserate with the cost and risks it imposes. As Robert Jervis, professor of international affairs at Columbia University, has written, the pursuit of primacy was what great power politics was all about in the past. But in a world of nuclear weapons, with low security threats and great common interests among the developed countries, the game is not worth the candle. Charles Glaser, professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University, similarly argues that primacy and the worldwide military presence associated with it is much overrated. The United States can protect core national interests without it, and in fact, the strategy causes the United States to lose track of how secure it is and consequently pursue policies that are designed to increase its security but turn out to be too costly and or to have a high probability of backfiring. Nor does U.S. dominance reap much in the way of tangible economic rewards. Daniel Dresner, professor of international politics at Tufts University, contends, the economic benefits from military predominance alone seem, at a minimum, to have been exaggerated. 
there is little evidence that military primacy yields appreciable geoeconomic gains, and therefore, an over-reliance on military preponderance is badly misguided. Alternatively, a grand strategy of restraint holds that the preeminent power of the United States, coupled with an increasingly peaceful world, means it can afford to pull back from its worldwide military presence and rein in its activist foreign policy. The foregoing critique suggests that the sprawling U.S. basing system does not provide enough value to justify its continued existence. Instead, the U.S. presence abroad should be minimized to match with the dearth of acute threats and limited strategic benefits to U.S. interests. This section will make the case for withdrawing the U.S. base presence from three key regions, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Europe is the simplest case for the withdrawal of U.S. military bases. One of the most stable regions on the planet, Europe contains four great powers, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and Russia. Conflict between any of them is unlikely. European Union member states have a combined gross domestic product, GDP, greater than that of the United States. Great Britain, France, and Germany are all liberal democracies and have advanced, peaceful relationships based on closely aligned political, diplomatic, and economic interests. That statement does not apply to Russia, but the United Kingdom and France possess nuclear weapons making military conflict, even in the event of deteriorated relationships, extremely unlikely. In Europe especially, the cost of conflict, even in a conventional war, have become prohibitive while the gains have greatly diminished. In addition to the declining utility of war, Europe is politically and culturally unique in the extent to which the memory of the devastation of the world wars has contributed to the decline of militarism and a greater focus on social stability and economic well-being. Even in a pure balance of power analysis, none of the major states of Europe is strong enough to make a bid for regional hegemony, something nuclear weapons make essentially impossible. Russia, the regional power that generates the most calls for a U.S. presence, has an aging population and a relatively weak economy that is over-reliant on oil and natural gas. Its GDP is about $1.36 trillion, not much higher than Spain's. Although Russia possesses nuclear weapons, such weapons are not useful for offense and do not aid in coercive diplomacy, as Todd S. Sexer, Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia, and Matthew Furman, Associate Director of Political Science at Texas A&M University, show in empirical studies. In terms of conventional weapons and forces, the Russia military is comparatively frail, lagging behind the other great powers. Extended offensive operations against other states would put considerable strain on Russia, and thus would be unsustainable for very long. NATO was established to contain Soviet growth and influence on the European continent. That objective has been achieved, and an American exit from the military alliance is overdue. U.S. presence in Europe, especially in former Warsaw Pact states and former Soviet republics, arguably does more to provoke Russian meddling than to deter it. 
and bases in Europe do not provide much of an operational or tactical advantage for the United States, even for unlikely contingencies, meaning that even if Washington upheld its current set of security commitments there, it could fulfill those obligations with a dramatically reduced overseas presence. Even though the positioning of U.S. military bases throughout the European nations did once pacify relations between Europe and Russia, the European Union is now rich and powerful enough to achieve that objective on its own. Since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, terrorism has risen to the top of the list of national security priorities. Vast sums of money, considerable manpower, and a slew of new base sites abroad have been devoted to fighting Islamic terrorist groups. However, contrary to the bulk of the rhetoric from policymakers, terrorism does not represent an existential threat to the United States. Terrorism is a problem to be managed, not a war to be won, and a forward-deployed military posture is not very useful in addressing it. Indeed, U.S. military presence was one of the primary motivators and recruitment mechanisms of al-Qaeda in the lead-up to 9-11 and U.S. military action in the region post-9-11 served as an even more potent generator of Islamic jihadism. In most cases, a sensible military solution to terrorism does not exist, and heavy-handed military action can exacerbate the problem by fueling resentment and recruitment. The Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS, for example, is an outgrowth of the Sunni insurgency that rose up to fight U.S. forces in Iraq and subsequently gained strength in the Syrian civil war. Fighting blowback with more of the same interventionism that generated it in the first place is unlikely to produce desirable results. The traditional justification for U.S. policy in the Middle East has been to secure the free flow of oil through the Persian Gulf via a forward-deployed posture, thereby stabilizing prices. But the argument that maintaining such a military posture in the Middle East protects the free flow of oil is flawed. According to Joshua Rovner, a professor at Southern Methodist University, and Caitlin Talmadge of George Washington University, the policy of large permanent peacetime land forces in the Gulf is not particularly useful for oil security. That policy has often been just as counterproductive as the vacuums created by hegemonic absence, generating regional instability and making the terrorist threat worse through blowback. Rovner and Talmadge argue that even if the United States had fostered a forward-deployed posture before Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, it's not clear that this posture would have deterred Saddam Hussein. It is possible that the economic and political stakes may have been so high that, from his perspective, a different American force posture might not have affected his calculations. Similarly, Rovner and Talmadge conclude, it is unclear that a hegemonic presence in the region could have done much to prevent the OPEC oil embargo of 1973. As Eugene Goles and Daryl Press conclude, the day-to-day -day peacetime presence of the U.S. military forces in the Persian Gulf region is not merely ineffective. It is probably counterproductive for protecting U.S. oil interests. The United States does have interests in the security and supply of oil, 
but those interests are often exaggerated, and the region's energy resources are not as vulnerable as it is often claimed. Strictly in terms of the U.S. economy, the direct reliance on Persian Gulf oil imports is modest and declining. But the price of oil is determined by global supply and demand, not by reliance on specific geographic sources. Fortunately, the United States is relatively insulated from price spikes associated with supply disruptions. Although a major disruption could cause an economic downturn, today's economy is better equipped to deal with sudden changes in energy markets than it was in the 1970s. Kenneth Vincent explains that the causes are reduced oil imports and consumption, more flexible labor markets, and monetary policies, and reduced energy intensity of economic output, or the amount of energy required to produce a dollar of GDP. In every major oil shock since 1973, global energy markets adapted quickly through increasing production from other sources, rerouting shipping transportation, and putting both private and government-held inventories around the world into use. These market adjustments mitigated the ramifications of the shocks and stabilized prices and supply. The balance of power, both in the region and globally, is favorable for energy security. The threat of an external power gaining a foothold in the Persian Gulf region is not in the cards in the policy-relevant future. The Soviet Union is long gone, and today's Russia suffers from systematic economic problems that hinder its potential to project power in the Middle East. China, although increasingly powerful in its own sphere, lacks the political will to dominate the Gulf. Regionally, the circumstances are similarly advantageous. According to Rovner, the chance that a regional hegemon will emerge in the Persian Gulf during the next 20 years is slim to none. This is true even if the United States withdraws completely. There are only three potential major powers in the region, Iraq, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. None of them possesses the capabilities necessary to conquer neighboring territories or gain a controlling influence over Persian Gulf oil resources. In addition to being too weak to make a bid for regional dominance, all three are bogged down and distracted by internal problems. Overall, the region is in a state of defense dominance. The major states are too weak to project power beyond their borders, but they do have the capability to deter their neighbors. Deterrence works well in this environment because the cost of offensive action remain prohibitively high. Some scholars argue that the decreased importance of Persian Gulf oil means the United States should completely phase out its military commitment to the region during the next 10 years. But even if Washington rejects that position and continues to factor in military intervention to deal with supply disruptions and other contingencies, maintaining a peacetime military presence in the region is not necessary. The United States can rely on carrier-based air power and long-range bombers if military intervention in a crisis becomes necessary. The United States' military presence in East Asia has several goals. It is meant to deter and contain China, to stave off spirals of conflict, to bolster the credibility of security agreements that bind the United States to defend allies, and to provide a rapid contingency response. 
China's rise is not nearly as much of a threat to U.S. security as is often claimed. China's posture is defensive in nature. According to official Chinese news sources, the country's military modernization effort lags far behind advanced global peers, and its army is not capable enough of waging modern warfare. Despite much consternation in Washington over China's renewed assertiveness, Beijing has compromised more frequently than it has used force, explains MIT professor of political science M. Taylor Fravel, and has been less belligerent than leading theories of international relations might have predicted for a state with its characteristics. Nor is China a viable candidate for hegemony in the near term. Although the growth in China's economy is impressive, it is only a crude indication of actual and latent military power, and it obscures the many metrics: technological innovation, overall military readiness, power projection capability, and a dearth of allies that illustrate America's huge lead over China. As Dartmouth University professors Stephen G. Brooks and William C. Wolforth argue. China is nowhere near a peer of the United States, which will long remain the world's sole superpower. That statement coincides with findings from the Rand Corporation that concludes that China cannot possibly catch up to, much less leapfrog the United States or Japan in the foreseeable future when it comes to military capability. Even assuming China's continued rapid economic growth. The prospect that China would achieve regional dominance is remote. Asia's geography, characterized by island and peninsula powers and mountainous regions throughout, provides challenging physical obstacles to China's quest for hegemony. Moreover, China is surrounded by major powers such as Russia, India, Japan, and South Korea, which would resist such a gambit. The U.S. military presence in Korea. And its security commitment to Taiwan, explains Robert Ross, are not major factors in the balance of power or in U.S. protection of shipping lanes, and could be relinquished at little cost to U.S. security. America's military presence in East Asia is arguably exacerbating instability in the region by making China feel encircled. The United States' presence along China's maritime periphery is highly militarized and provocative, with the U.S. Pacific Fleet conducting 170 exercises and 600 training events with more than 20 allied countries in the region every year. China sees Washington's massive military presence on the Korean Peninsula, as just across the East China Sea, on the southern tip of the Japanese archipelago, as a threat to Chinese security. The United States' status as the largest naval presence in the region also stokes fear in China. The roughly 40 percent of China's seaborne oil imports that pass through sea lanes and critical choke points, such as the Strait of Malacca, are subject to interdiction by the United States. China's concern about that possibility at least partially explains Beijing's attempts to militarize the South China Sea, which in turn contributes to regional instability. The other reason to reevaluate the U.S. posture in Asia is that China's rise, while not eminently on track to achieve regional hegemony, does raise the cost of U.S. commitments. If conflict were to break out, Washington would need to dispatch reinforcements 
from thousands of miles away, sustain its military units over lengthy air and sea lines of communication, and operate them from a small number of bases, writes Evan Braden Montgomery, senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, whereas China would be able to concentrate its forces more rapidly and support them more easily. In this strategic environment, America's security commitments to allies are increasingly strained, and its military presence is a dwindling asset. In the near term, careful retrenchment would likely have a favorable influence on U.S.-China relations. The job of defending allies such as Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines, Thailand, and Australia should be left to those countries to perform on their own. U.S. military presence and security guarantees discourage active self-defense among regional allies and unwisely obligate American intervention into local disputes that have little to no inherent importance for U.S. interests and security. Even if the United States were to maintain its commitments to allies, withdrawing the military presence from the region would allow allies to be the first line of defense in case of war forcing the countries to do the heavy lifting while America plays the role of balancer. Overseas Bases to Keep If the United States were to withdraw from the regions described, there is a reasonable argument for keeping U.S. bases at two locations abroad in order to compensate for the decrease in contingency responsiveness and area access, Guam and Diego Garcia. Strategically located in the Pacific Ocean, Guam is the nearest sovereign U.S. territory to the nations of the Asia-Pacific, about 1,600 miles from Japan and about 1,550 miles from the Philippines. This location means that the Guam base is useful for decreasing transit times in case of any unlikely contingencies in which U.S. forces would be quickly needed. Submarines operating at 20 knots take about five days to reach the East Asian littoral from Guam, whereas they take about eight days from Hawaii and 15 days from San Diego. A Guam-based brigade combat team could deploy by air or sea to key Asia-Pacific areas in a span of 5 to 14 days. Ships cruising at 25 knots from Guam can arrive at the Taiwan Strait in about two and a half days not much longer than the one day they take from the Philippines. That extra distance from the East Asian littoral also means Guam is less vulnerable to Chinese and North Korean missiles. Because Guam is a U.S. territory, it does not face the problems of uncertainty and host nation concerns that most bases in foreign territory must deal with. Plans are already underway to increase the military presence at Guam by relocating troops from Japan thanks to a 2012 agreement with Tokyo meant to resolve intense local opposition to U.S. bases in Okinawa. As part of that overall shift, Guam is being further developed as a logistics hub to enable forces in Asia and serve as a base for at-sea prepositioning and air defense capabilities. Guam, therefore, serves as a convenient location for a low-cost, fully capable military base that avoids the strategic baggage of in-place forces on foreign territory. Diego Garcia, a small island in the Indian Ocean, offers similar advantages without the liability of most other forward-deployed bases.
It is approximately 1,000 miles south of India, 700 miles southwest of Sri Lanka, and 2,500 miles southeast of the Persian Gulf. Owned by our close ally Great Britain, Diego Garcia has hosted U.S. military facilities since the 1960s. Like Guam, Diego Garcia's distance from potential adversaries on land means it is less vulnerable than many bases along the Asian littoral or in the Middle East. Diego Garcia has limitations as a basing hub. It is only 11 square miles with an average land elevation of only 4 feet, meaning it cannot necessarily host large Navy platforms. But it nonetheless allows the United States to project considerable military power. According to Walter C. Ladwig III and others, it currently serves four primary functions for American commanders. A full one-third of the entire U.S. afloat pre-positioning force occupies the lagoon. Fast attack submarines and surface ships use the deep draft wharf. An air expeditionary wing supports tactical and long-range broadcasts to units in the area. And a telecommunications station tracks satellites and relays fleet broadcasts to units in the area. Diego Garcia has been one of the Air Force's most important assets for the war in Afghanistan. It is situated so that long-range bombers based there, such as the Air Expeditionary Wing's B-52s, do not require refueling support for missions in South Asia or the Middle East. Facilities at Diego Garcia are not and should not be designed for deterrence and reassurance objectives. They merely provide proximity to strategic areas for any potentially serious contingency requiring U.S. intervention. Diego Garcia is far enough afield to be much safer from attack by long-range ballistic missiles and poses a negligible risk of entangling the United States in elective conflicts or creating host nation complications. Conclusion Despite the bipartisan support for extensive overseas bases, there is some interest in reform. In 2011, Senator Ron Wyden, along with five of his Senate colleagues, signed a bipartisan letter calling for dramatically reducing our overseas military presence, which would have minimal negative impact on our nation's readiness or ability to efficiently respond to emerging threats. The following year, Senator John Tester and then-Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison introduced legislation calling on the Defense Department to appoint an independent commission to review the military's overseas basing needs and their associated costs as a first step toward closing facilities that are no longer needed. The George W. Bush administration, though by no means advocating a retreat from America's global role, initiated a global defense posture review that proposed moving away from large, elaborate bases in favor of maintaining access to smaller facilities with little or no permanent U.S. military presence, but which could be used for deployments when needed. The plan included reducing and consolidating the U.S. overseas military presence in Western Europe and Northeast Asia which was seen as less useful for dealing with future security challenges, writes Lastombo and others. Furthermore, polls show that a plurality of Americans remain very skeptical of the United States' activist role in international affairs, 
and some polls find a majority who think the nation should deal with its own problems and let other countries deal with their problems the best they can. The lack of serious efforts to reduce American overseas military base presence is less a function of such ideas being out of the mainstream and more a function of bureaucratic inertia. As far back as December 1970, a congressional investigation led by the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations studied security agreements and commitments abroad. The report explained why the strategic use of U.S. military bases abroad is never seriously scrutinized. Once an American overseas base is established, it takes on a life of its own. Original missions may become outdated, but new missions are developed, not only with the intent of keeping the facility going, but often to actually enlarge it, the study concluded. Within the government departments most directly concerned, state and defense, we found little initiative to reduce or eliminate any of the overseas facilities, which is only to be expected since they would be recommending a reduction in their own position. It went on, such reductions were often resisted on the ground that they would appear to be a withdrawal from a commitment and a lessening of will on the part of the United States, conclusions which do not necessarily follow. The same logic holds today. Entrenched interests, both inside and outside government, remain committed to America's global military presence. Those interests, combined with the ideological belief that forward deployment is the cornerstone of a stable world order, result in scant political incentive to propose even partial withdrawal from overseas bases. To the extent that overseas bases are intended to prevent war and manage faraway disputes through deterrence and reassurance, they serve outdated foreign policy objectives and a grand strategy that needs to be narrowed. On top of that, Modern technology has reduced the problems of travel times over long distances and simultaneously has increased the vulnerabilities of in-place forces. Acknowledging these new realities and initiating appropriate reforms, including full withdrawal from nearly all overseas bases, would serve U.S. interests.